If you've been to any tech conferences or read any tech blogs in the past few years, you've almost certainly heard the term containers, as well as a load of other confusing words with a few too many syllables. So historically, when containers were first started to be used, they were aimed at very stateless applications. That's Chris Ibbotson. I'm Chris Ibbotson. I'm a chief technologist focused on the financial services industry, in particular, helping organizations understand how to leverage hybrid cloud technologies such as containers, Kubernetes, etc. Today, we're going to be exploring containers from the ground up to explain the what, the where, the how, and the why of this small but mighty innovation. We're going to be asking what are containers and how on earth do they work? How can organizations get to grips with this quickly evolving innovation? And why are incumbent banks and Pokemon Go a lot more similar than we ever anticipated? All this and much more. I'm Michael Bird, and this is Technology Untangled. Containerization as a topic tends to be a bit overwhelming. There is a huge amount of information out there about something that is, at least on the face of it, pretty tiny. Containers, in essence, are a way to package applications to abstract them away from the environment they actually run. By decoupling um, the application in this manner, you can kind of deploy them easily and consistently, no matter where you're looking to run them. So whether that's in a data center, on the public cloud, or even on a developer's laptop as they're developing. Um, it can get quite convoluted, but for me, it's, it is that simple. It's just your piece of software and whatever dependencies that software needs to actually run. Stu Anderson there, the technical lead for containers and data platform for Point Next in the UK and Ireland. If you have a piece of software you've written that requires the Microsoft.NET Core framework to run, to run it, you need your own software plus whatever the Microsoft.NET Core framework is, about 100 megabytes, I think, for the lightweight version. So that's very simply a, a, an example of a very small container. You package the software so and all the uh, containers code and their dependencies into a container image. That is then um, deposited in a container registry. And then containers become containers at runtime. So when you push that container image onto a container engine, and if you've got loads of containers, you kind of want to run them in an industrial manner um, using an orchestrator such as Kubernetes. Well, if like me, you're already scratching your head over some of this, then do not worry. We're first going to wind it back with a little history. Containers are considered to be a relatively new innovation, but the concept has been around since the 1970s. When you look at the technology landscape then, so mainframe systems, Unix systems, and, and they were used then for very, very similar reasons for what we want to use them today, to abstract away from either underlying code or underlying hardware and enable an element of portability. That said, containers as we recognize them today really only kicked off in the late 90s. If we go back to the 90s, we were very much in the, uh, the client-server era. So organizations were starting to leverage non-mainframe technology and moving away from maybe just using large Unix systems all the time to leverage computers or servers that run microprocessors. So to think what, what we actually all, all use today. And so they were looking to use servers to run applications on. 
And typically to avoid issues with those applications, businesses would have a physical server or sets of physical servers dedicated to a single application. And that often led to inefficiencies, as in you, you might find the servers were too large, they weren't necessarily using all of the capacity available, or they were taking up too much space. So if we then move into the 2000s, the concept of virtualization came to distributed systems. So this allowed an organization to deploy a hypervisor onto a physical server or sets of servers that in turn could host many virtual machines. Each virtual machine would allow an operating system to be run and could replace the multiple physical servers that we'd seen in the 90s. And the intent behind this was that it should lead to more efficiencies. Around the same time that virtualization and virtual machines came to market, container technology made its debut on Linux. And in fact, VMs and containers are often spoken about in the same breath because they both, in simple terms, allow different ways to build and manage applications. I made a little comic where I explain containers using cookies, using a cookie analogy, containers versus virtual machines. That is Kaslin Fields. Hello, everyone. A developer advocate at Google Cloud. I focus on cloud-native containers and DevOps-type topics. Whether you're using containers or virtual machines, it's all about the chocolate chips. <laughs> it's all about your applications. You can package them in virtual machines or you can package them in containers. Either way, you're going to have to have those cookies in a bowl. So either way, you're containers or your virtual machines are actually running on some physical host somewhere. So you have to make some considerations about density of that host, where containers are more like mini cookies. They're still chocolate chip cookies, but they're small. And virtual machines are more like bigger chocolate chip cookies, so you can't fit as many in a bowl. And that's because virtual machines are virtualizing the hardware, and they also have a guest operating system, so they take up more resources. Whereas containers are this lighter weight concept where they're not doing all of that virtualization. Thanks, Kaslin. Although I do now really want to eat some cookies. Virtual machines were an easier sell, partly because containers were just so tricky to handle. The game changer came in 2013 when the Docker open source platform hit the market, bringing containers into the mainstream. Docker arrived 2005-ish, but, but really in earnest in about 2008. And they made it really simple. They greatly simplified and standardized the methods for creating containers, for deploying them, uh, and for running, running your applications inside them. So that kind, of, that kind of opened it up a bit to the masses. But doing other stuff with them and orchestrating them at scale was still a difficult thing. So if I wanted to have my application, I actually want to run 10 instances of it, let's say. And if one of them fails, I want, to, I want another one to come up in its place to make sure I always have 10 managing that kind of state and orchestrating the system so it behaves in a, in, a, in a really consistent manner. Docker doesn't really do that. Docker simplified the way containers were created and run, but deploying and managing them at scale was, well, next to impossible. Enter Google with Kubernetes. The concept of Kubernetes comes from Google Borg. Docker kind of made containers new and exciting, and everybody wanted to get on board the container train. But Google saw that opportunity and created this system to run containers at scale before it was cool, you could say. <laughs> and that's Borg. 
So it has a lot of the a lot of similar capabilities to Kubernetes, but it was before a lot of the modern ways that we use containers today. So containers started to be popular, and some folks at Google, Joe Beta, Brendan Burns, and Craig McLucky, they went this path of creating an open source project that kind of emulated what they were doing with Borg internally, and that was Kubernetes. Kubernetes was developed to take on the logistics challenge of containers, referred to as container orchestration. Imagine a cookie factory. The exciting thing here is not that it's where containers are made. The containers, the cookies could be made somewhere else and shipped into this factory, but it processes them. It packages them up and it sends them out. So if we think about that process, we have an area of the factory where we get all the cookies in and then we have to go through and package them. Maybe it's individual packages of cookies. Maybe it's a package of a few cookies together. So Kubernetes has a similar concept with containers. It's called pods. So in Kubernetes, you're not actually orchestrating individual containers. You're creating this pod concept, which can be more than one container, which are tightly coupled. So if it's two pieces of the same application that have to work together really closely, but you've separated them out into containers, there can be all sorts of reasons why that is. You can put them both in the same pod. And so Kubernetes will do everything it does with that pod with multiple containers together. So uh, think about a shelf in a store. You've got a bunch of the same product, right? A bunch of packages with the same number of cookies in it. You can do something similar with Kubernetes where you say, I want a thousand copies of this pod and we'll always spin it up so that you have both of those containers together. A lot of the time, if you need those containers to always be together, put it in a pod and Kubernetes will treat it like that. It's got all sorts of capabilities for making sure that the containers can talk to each other, making sure that they get to the right place. So it's kind of the logistics of getting them to where they need to go. History and definitions over. Container orchestration ensures more automation and repeatability within the container environment. That equals less manual work in an application lifecycle. But... Why should the average organization care about containers in the first place? Well, they make software development a heck of a lot easier. Containers give you a really consistent environment. So what does that mean? So because all of your software dependencies are contained within your container, you don't care about the underlying host that that container runs on. So anyone who's been involved in deploying software to environments, to bare metals, or virtual machines, will have seen... A software deployment, work in one environment, say the developer's laptop test environment, works just fine there and you get to the production environment, the same deployment doesn't work and causes you a nightmare. So a lot of organizations have quite complex and resource-intensive delivery mechanisms because of this fragility that is involved in deploying software to environments that are susceptible to that kind of change. Containers don't really have that. So they give you this really consistent way to say, if it works on my laptop, I know it's gonna work. That level of consistency is one of the big advantages of using containers kind of full stop. Those same properties that give you that consistency make them really portable. Another thing might be density. So 
because containers are a lightweight way of packaging your software up, you can run a lot more on your host infrastructure. So you get a lot higher utilization and efficiency on the resources that you're actually paying good money for by deploying them in this way. I guess in general, containers are synonymous with you know some of this buzzword bingo stuff, creating scalable decoupled microservices. It really means that it makes your software easy to deploy, easy to scale, easy to upgrade, and essentially getting your software out faster, cheaper, and more reliably. And, and a lot of our organizations we work with, their software is their business. So containers orchestrated by Kubernetes are becoming commonplace for developing and delivering cloud-native or microservice applications. That's a tongue twister right there. If you're researching container use cases, then you'll definitely have come across microservices at some point. Over to Chris. So it's the idea behind a microservice is you should take a service that you're looking to deliver within an application and it should be as small as possible for what makes sense for you. So in the past, if we if we use maybe a banking analogy, you might have had a banking application that was almost one big application. So everything you needed to do, if you imagine that was identify someone as a customer, verify they are as a customer, get their account list, show their balance, might be all within one set of code. If we flip that to a microservice, this is the idea that you should you should actually code in very standalone elements, pieces of that application. So get balance might be a microservice on its own. And the, the benefit of taking that approach is that in theory, you can have a team of developers just focused on get balance and because it's well constructed and the APIs around it are well known and documented that they can make changes to that piece of code without necessarily needing to impact or change other elements of code within the wider application. Microservices don't necessarily need to be in containers, but the way that containers can scale up and down makes them a great fit. So far, this is all sounding like a little tool for DevOps teams to do their jobs. Nothing that will affect the average person. Unless, of course, you're one of the 20 million active users of Pokemon Go. So a little backstory, I love Pokemon. Even though I wasn't at Google yet, I was into containers and Kubernetes at the time. So I saw this launch coming and I was all excited about it, of course. I signed up for it. And then it started having all these problems in the first week. Everyone was saying their system was getting hammered. They were getting way too many requests. And I was like, wow, why don't they just use this Kubernetes thing? Pokemon Go was developed by Niantic Inc an organization that started life as part of Google's parent company, Alphabet. They had all the pieces that they needed to start out with as engineers. So they were probably familiar with Borg. So they may have been familiar with this container orchestration model of developing applications. They may have had some knowledge about how Kubernetes works too. They might have had some people who helped develop the open source project. They probably knew some things about the container types that were popular then, which would be Docker. The problem with Pokemon Go's initial launch is that they were using Kubernetes, but it was still very much in its infancy. Pokemon Go came out in July of 2016. The first 1.0 release of Kubernetes came out in July of 2015. So they are using a technology that is one year old to do this, it's amazing. And not only that, they are using uh, GKE. 
So this is Google's managed Kubernetes service. They're using an open source technology that is one year old. <laughs> I wonder why they had problems. <laughs> Downloads grew exponentially and Niantic were caught off guard by both the sheer volume of traffic and the massive challenge of vertical and horizontal scaling. Due to the fact that everyone wanted to go out and catch Pokemon. If you were talking about this story in a world where containers and Kubernetes didn't exist, imagine they had to do this in a data center where if they ran out of capacity, they ran out of capacity and they weren't going to have it for several more weeks, right? you'd be losing customers left and right because you can't get them in. Whereas the problems with Pokemon Go when it came out, they were kind of intermittent. You could try to log in like one hour and a few hours later, maybe try to log in and you might get in or maybe a, a day or two later, but it wasn't that long. So what was happening during that on the back end was that they were trying to solve all of these capacity issues. They were running this cluster on Google Kubernetes engine and they were running tens of thousands of cores in a Kubernetes cluster on version like it had to be one of the first three versions of Kubernetes, 1.0 through 1.3. That was all that existed at the time. So <laughs> they were doing some amazing things and they found a bunch of bugs with Kubernetes that they gave back to the community that they later incorporated into the open source project. Pokemon Go became a big case study for containers and Kubernetes at scale. And what a scale. This setup was huge. So I looked up the suggested cluster size for the current version of Kubernetes. And that's Kubernetes version 1.18. They say no more than 5,000 nodes, 15,000 pods, 30,000 containers, no more than 100 pods per node is what they think a single Kubernetes cluster can handle. So we look at that and we look at the Pokemon Go case and we know that they're probably blowing all of that out of the water. <laughs> so one thing that we can take away from that is that these are suggestions. If you really understand the technologies, you can get a bit beyond them, but you're probably going to have a lot of issues. So the next thing we have to start thinking about is how are we going to address these challenges of scale, the limits of scale of Kubernetes itself. And there's a lot of cool technology, a lot of cool features coming down the pipe to handle these types of situations. Now that we've seen the amazing things that they can do and the amazing challenges they face. This was a pressure cooker of a use case. By collaborating with Google, Niantic helped iron out the kinks that fed back into the versions of Kubernetes and Google Container Engine that many organizations are using today. So even though the Japan launch was three times the size of the U.S. launch for Pokemon Go, they were able to do that launch without many major problems. Niantic saw this flood coming and they said, hey, Google, we're using your cloud to run this mobile application that's <laughs> getting an amazing amount of traffic that we didn't expect. We really need your help making sure that we can serve our users during this trying time. <laughs> and so this new concept of Google customer reliability engineers that Google had created to deal with this, they worked with Niantic to understand their challenges well. And they made sure that they spun up enough capacity for Niantic to handle that 3x <laughs> user traffic on the first day of Pokemon Go in Japan. 
Now, spinning up capacity for worldwide deployment isn't just the reserve of gaming. As Stuart explains, containerization was the key that helped a UK-based fraud detection platform go international. They look for fraudulent activity between transactions. So if one account is clearly being leached from or it's leeching from many accounts or there's, there's clear cycling of money going between accounts, you get these pictures of what fraudulent activity might look like. So that was a, a UK system that they built, very, very successful. But then they realized, that, okay, well, this is valuable all over the world. Anywhere where we can, we can see the bank transactions, this kind of fraud detection modeling is applicable. The challenge this organization had is, okay, well, this is all built in our data center, all custom built. How can we run this? How can we create the system in such a way that we can deploy it globally, that we can deploy it quickly, and that we can onboard customers in a kind of frictionless manner? We implemented a container platform for that customer. We defined everything as code, so the infrastructure build as code um, happens to be in Microsoft Azure. So at the click of a button, the whole infrastructure appears. So all the compute that you need for the environment, all the storage, all the networking, you know, all of that stuff. The Kubernetes environment to run your containers, again, is, is in the deployment. And then you layer your software on top. And then in very short order from going, just being able to do this in the UK, you can do it globally. Banks have been some of the earliest adopters of containerization due to both the scalability and also the way microservices work. Some of the well-known challenger banks, such as Monzo, have built their entire back-end on microservices alone. Many banks will all be using containers and Kubernetes to deliver a lot of their customer-facing applications. So if you imagine online banking on the mobile banking applications we use on, on our mobile phones, etc., will all probably be driven by and running in containers and Kubernetes. As they've been redeveloping applications, they're starting sometimes afresh, so can leverage cloud-native concepts such as 12 factors and microservices to deliver applications which can truly benefit from the elasticity that containers and Kubernetes can provide. The term cloud-native is used to describe container-based environments such as Kubernetes, but it's really more about a mindset. 12 factors is a common set of principles or methodology that the community has agreed so it hasn't really come from one organization on what good practice looks like for developing cloud native or microservice applications the 12 factors and cloud native concepts are well worth reading up on and you can find more information linked in the show notes the fact that banks are using containers goes to show just how far the technology has come in such a short amount of time in the past, containers had a pretty bad reputation when it came to security. Chris and Stuart explain why. One of the drawbacks is that, as well as one of the positives, with containers, you can rapidly scale them. So you can go from having one container to having hundreds deployed very quickly. But because a container is based on a container image, if you get that container image wrong, so maybe you haven't scanned it for vulnerabilities, you've got bad code in there, malicious code, you've multiplied that vulnerability impact very rapidly. I think it's partly just an abstraction problem. I think VMs had the same problem way back when. These environments are getting more and more abstract. There's more and more layers to the things that you're composing inside these code bases. You'll get challenges emerging straight away if you're just going to use your existing security policies and checklists. These won't scale or work with containers. You very much need to reevaluate them to make sure that they're appropriate 
people are getting more and more comfortable now because there's more and more security standards coming out. So the Center for Internet Security have Docker standards, they have Kubernetes standards, they have operating system standards, they even have cloud environment standards now. There is now good security tooling as well. So inside your container environment, for example, you could run Twistlock or Black Duck. There's a whole lot of these fairly uh, sophisticated security tools that you can run inside the container environment to look for security vulnerabilities, to look for intrusion. Really early on, when these tooling didn't exist, it was a bit like the Wild West, but it's getting much, much more mature now. As with most new technologies and technological advances, you shouldn't just be considering the technology as the only success criteria. You also need to look at the processes around how that technology is used and making sure that your people are upskilled as well so that your people have awareness. For organisations that use containerization, the benefits include quick scaling, easy management and reduced infrastructure costs. Finance is a great example who are very much obviously interested in how much stuff costs to run and that cost to serve the business and their end customers. Containerization, but more importantly, the ecosystem containerization sits in. So imagine Kubernetes and some of those other cloud native concepts. That, that could benefit because if, if you follow the principles correctly, you should only be consuming infrastructure and technology when you have load. So you, you shouldn't necessarily be paying for infrastructure to be sat there and not being used um, you should just be spinning up instances as and when you need them. So obviously for a finance department, containerization could benefit them in that you'll be running the organization much more efficiently. Uh, a, a second benefit may be towards the wider organization rather than just the technology organization could be that it helps drive agility. So, so the fact that you can start to leverage if you're using the wider ecosystem of Kubernetes and developing into those tool chains of continuous integration, continuous deployment, that can help you as a business release change quicker, which might be the differentiation between some of your competitors. So the ability to release new functionality maybe in applications your customers use, which generates revenue, but by adopting containers, that can act as one of the foundations to enable you to introduce that change and that new functionality quicker, thus being more agile in the market and maybe generating unique settlement points for you as an organization. As containerization matures as a technology, it sounds like it's going to be a big win for all kinds of organizations. So should organizations take note? Or to put it another way, should they crack out the chocolate chip cookies? I, I think IT departments should absolutely start to evaluate what adopting new architectures and capabilities such as containers mean for them. If you've already started utilizing cloud experiences and you've already got modern applications written in a cloud native approach, then absolutely, if you're not already utilizing containers and Kubernetes, you should start evaluating them now. However, if you haven't decided if you want to use the cloud or not use the cloud and your applications are maybe written in more traditional methods, and you follow more traditional software development lifecycle approaches, then you actually might want to take more of a step back and look at take a wider look at how you consume and deliver technology before jumping straight in with containerization. So in a lot of businesses, you're talking about re-architecting things that already exist into this brand new model. And that can be really challenging. If organizations don't lock in this way today, one of the big things we like to talk to them about is, well, are you in a position where you can operate an environment like this in the future? So if today you just run a virtualized environment uh, and you have these really clear pillars of who's responsible for what in your organization, 
if you put a big container platform in, some of that operating model doesn't work anymore. So getting ready for that kind of change is, is a lot of the work that we do with our customers we work with. The benefits are clear for, for many organizations and, and you can often game the finances to your advantage if it's, if it's cloud-based, that kind of true hybrid IT stuff as well. The good news is there are plenty of places where organizations can find out more about containerization, from webinars to conferences to blogs and podcasts, many hosted by Google and the wider open source community. You can check out some of our favorite sources in the show notes. Containerization is an exciting, dynamic and relatively young innovation. So how it matures over the next few years will be an amazing evolution to watch. I think we'll start to see the use of containers and orchestrators emerge outside of the data center and the cloud much more. So for instance, I think we'll start to see much more edge use cases and that edge could be many different locations. So that could be whether it's related to driving internet of things use cases, or maybe telecoms at the telco edge. We'll see over the next few years that every customer that we work with is going to be asking us, okay, they, they used to ask us a lot, can you help us with the cloud environment? And now it's much more, can you help me with my Kubernetes environment, my container environment? So for me, it's all about adoption over the next few years. Containerization is often touted as the next big thing. So I put it to our guests. Is containerization the trend that will define the 2020s? I think it will. I think it will, certainly for larger organizations. If your software is key and getting it out in a reliable manner is, is important and changing it frequently is important uh, and your customers depend on it being reliable and resilient and scalable and all this kind of stuff, it just is the way to do it properly. As I say, Kubernetes is only five years old, you know, it's it's... It's just going to mature into the next few years uh, and certainly towards the end of the end of the 2020s, you would assume. If you couple containerization with Kubernetes for orchestration, with the benefits that applications that are following those cloud native principles bring, along with the elasticity and the ability to drive infrastructure as code that you get with that whole cloud experience, then I think that maybe you do have the capability to really help organizations drive further agility, and then it might be seen as maybe this decade's maturing big innovation. You heard it here, folks. Containerization is right here, right now. And as adoption increases, so too does its importance as part of tech's bright new frontier. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to go and catch myself a Charizard. You've been listening to Technology Untangled and a massive thanks to today's guests for joining us, Chris Ibbotson, Stuart Anderson and Kaslin Fields. You can find more information on today's episode, including Kaslin's brilliant containers and Kubernetes comics in the show notes. Make sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app and join us next time and we'll be tackling the new frontier of networking and compute on the ever-changing edge. Today's show was written and produced by Isabel Pollard and was hosted by me, Michael Bird, with sound design and editing by Alex Bennett and production support from Harry Morton, Thomas Berry and Alex Podmore. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett Packard Enterprise in the UK and Ireland. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you.